Hello, I'm Drew Catt, EdChoice's Director of State Research and Policy Analysis. I'm back today speaking with Christine Campbell and Georgia Hayward on EdChoice Chats. Both are researchers at the Center on Reinventing Public Education and co-authors of the report, Stepping Up, How Are American Cities Delivering on the Promise of Public School Choice? Welcome and thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's jump right in. Would you start by telling us about this research, what inspired it, and what ultimately were you hoping to learn? Sure. Uh, well, this is Christine Campbell, and um, I think to answer that question, we take a step back just a little bit to talk about some of the work that we at the Center on Reinventing Public Education have been doing, where we've been tracking school systems that have been inter uh, implementing the portfolio strategy for a number of years. So basically giving families options, uh, giving schools autonomy, and then holding them accountable uh, for performance. And in doing that, we would um, track how they were implementing things, but we weren't really uh, getting a sense of, of sort of whether things were improving in a city. The other thing that happened over the years is that the charter sector continued to grow, and we were really only focused on districts. So we thought this is really a chance to kind of broaden our perspective and look at a city the way a family might consider their city. They're not looking at sectors. They're looking at the schools in their neighborhood or across town. Mm -hmm. So we decided we would dig into um, getting a better sense of the educational landscape. And we picked about 18 high-choice cities. We included both district and charter schools in our research. And we also wanted to add more voices in our research. So as I said, we had been talking with districts. We added the charter sector. And we also added community voices. So folks, uh, community leaders and parents who lived in neighborhoods impacted by low-performing schools. We really thought that was an important piece to add to understand how well the intention of, of trying to do some work was playing out in reality for families. So we looked at really three, what we thought were three important measures whether the system was continuously improving, like do we see student outcomes going up? Um, are students uh, getting access to high quality education? So um, the number of schools out there that are um, high performing, whether um, low income students had access to um, uh, advanced coursework, and, um, and then also whether the city education strategy was rooted in the community. Again, this perception of how well is the work that's being done really reflecting what it is that families say they need and want. So those are the big things that we went after. And then we also wanted to crystallize for the folks in these cities what we saw as the big challenges that became evident in our research. So um, that's how we kind of wrapped up each of the uh, city um, research pages that we created with, with some analysis on what we saw and heard as we did the research. So which cities did you study, and how did you measure whether they were delivering on the promise of school choice? Hi. Yeah, this is Georgia Hayward. Um, we looked at, like Christine said, 18 cities, um, and we really tried to look at a range of cities. So we, um, in part of our analysis, were some of the largest cities in the nation, um, New York City, Los Angeles, um, Chicago. And we also looked at a lot of um, some smaller cities like Camden, New Jersey, or Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, and you know, medium-sized Atlanta, Georgia. So 
we looked across um, the country, different sizes of cities, um, different charter school shares. So New Orleans, um, almost every school is a charter school in DC. It's almost 50-50. Um, you get the picture to try to see what um, commonalities we could find across all these different cities um, and also to present a good enough variety that even cities that weren't represented in our research, maybe they could find a city that was a little bit like them. Um, and when we went to measure this, I mean, it was, um, we identified um, some student and school outcomes um, that we really just considered indicators. So it's very challenging to um, actually create measures that you can use across 18 different cities that are going to be comparable. Um, so we used uh, publicly available state and federal data, which uh, that way, if anyone um, had questions about our results, they could go back and uh, replicate it. Um, it did mean that some of our results were lagged, however. Most of our data was from the 2014-15 school year. Um, so again, this was just, we thought of these as indicators of what is happening in the cities. Um, and in terms of student um, academic um, proficiency, we looked at proficiency rates in schools. Um, it's, we did not look at student growth. Um, it was just outside the scope of a study like this across 18 different cities. Um, but we thought that by looking at proficiency rates in the schools in a city relative to the state, um, we would have a sense of whether or not, um, you know, how students, how schools were doing and we could track some trends over time. Um, and we also looked at um, things like graduation rates, again, across the city, um, student enrollment in advanced math coursework, um, and a couple of other outcomes like that. And then in reforms, um, like Christine mentioned, we have done a lot of work in portfolio districts. Um, our center has done research on choice systems, what works and what doesn't. And so using that, we created some reform indicators so that we could track the types of strategies that cities were using. Yeah. So about how many students are these types of policies affecting today? Um, well, I think, I mean, that's a great question. And uh, one of the things that, you know, we really realized in doing this research is almost every student in a urban system and in many suburban school systems are being educated in a city of that uses choice policies because public public school choice is not just charter schools i think that's one piece of it um, public school choice also includes being able to choose a any district school within your district or being able to choose a district school in the neighboring district a lot of cities have magnet school programs. Um, some cities like Denver have um, open enrollment across the city. Um, and so this impacts a very great number of students. I mean, we know that only about 7,000 students are being educated in charter schools. But like I said, that's, you know, when we look at, when you think about it broadly, it's, it's a lot of students. Yeah. So first, let's let's talk about access. Are cities with public school choice delivering? Um, okay. So this is Georgia again, and I think Christine will will jump in on this point too. But 
I would say um, I would say yes and no. Um, this is still an area that needs a lot of attention, but there is some good news. And so I'll start with the good news. Um, we used a measure for our study called the Education Equality Index. Um, and this was a measure that was created by great schools and ed cities. And what they did was they looked at how well low-income students were performing on state assessments um, relative to their peers nationally. And they did this at the school level, and then they were able to roll that up um, to kind of city level scores. And so when we looked at the cities in our analysis, we could see that actually, um, again, with this, you know, this was just the small sample of cities that we looked at in our analysis, but um, they were doing fairly well. Um, many of the cities, uh, in many of the cities, the low income students in that city were performing better than their um, peers nationally, and we were actually a little bit surprised to see that. Um, and we did find some cities, another one of our indicators of access was the distribution of students in advanced math coursework. We wanted to see if there was proportional representation, um, and we did find that in a couple of cities, uh, notably Camden, New Jersey, Memphis, New Orleans, Washington, D.C. Um, so again, just maybe a rough indication that um, these students, you know, a student, no matter what your um, racial or ethnic background, you have just as much, um, you have just as much of a chance to be enrolled in an advanced math course as any other student. Um, and we did, you know, a number of cities in our study also had really good policies in place um, that research has found to improve access. Um, and notably, those were places like Cleveland, Washington, D.C., New Orleans. Um, these are also, you know, cities that really take this seriously. We found a lot of programmatic variety in our cities, um, which means that, you know, one of the ideas of choice is that once you have a school that any student can enroll in, then you can also start to develop a more diverse uh, or more diverse portfolio of schools. And diverse meaning different types of um, instructional models, different types of school programs, that maybe a single neighborhood couldn't sustain, but if you have open enrollment across the city, then um, that school you know, can exist. And we actually did find in our analysis that there, were a, there was quite a bit of um, variety among the school models um, within a city, which we thought was a good indication or a good start towards um, making sure that different families can find uh, a school that's the right fit. And then I'm going to let um, Christine jump in here. Yeah, I was just chime in on this as well um, because uh, I think, you know, we were pretty struck. It was pretty remarkable to see that um, when you look across L18, there were some trends and that cities have honed their strategies to really support school quality. So a lot of the cities have policies to replicate schools uh, from high quality operators. Most um, charter authorizers had really strong authorizing practices, and most of the cities of the districts had some policies that would allow school leaders to hire their own teachers. So, you know, really essentially, the new schools that are open in these cities are in a better position to do well, and more school leaders are able to seek and hire the teachers of the right fit for their schools. So, those to, to us are kind of really promising trends uh, when you look at. Um, the growth of high quality schools in across these cities. 
Yeah, and um, we also did a survey in seven of our 18 cities, um, and one of uh, there was a set of questions where we were asking parents to tell us about barriers um, that they perceived in the choice process. And you know, another good news is that um, when you looked at the number of barriers that family parents were reporting, most parents were reporting that they faced no barriers or maybe just one barrier. Um, so again, very good news. Um, I think to the access point, though, uh, you know, still talking about this parent survey, we found just about what you would expect, which is even though families overall weren't reporting many barriers, um, low-income families were much more likely to cite uh, more barriers than non-low-income families, and um, a greater percentage of them were facing barriers. So these are things like not being able to find the information you need, um, not not being able to find transportation that you need, um, and the, the two biggest ones were not finding a school that is a good fit or finding a school with good academics. So this, you know, to us really highlights a tension where um, there is a greater variety of schools. Um, there are schools in general are educating students better. Um, but there's still really a lack of access here, especially for low-income families. That, um, and we didn't quite know why that might be. Um, you know, there's enough, but and we can talk about that later. But that this really um, remained a key tension. Um, there was so, you know, and with even though there was overall kind of system academic growth, you could say, or like Christine said, good policies in place, there's still a lot of unevenness across student subgroups in terms of um, outcomes and access. Yeah, now let's talk for a minute about community. So how locally driven are these open enrollment programs? Well, <clears throat> I think that the genesis for these often comes from just the growth of choice in a city. So more schools, more uh, deadlines to consider, um, more different timelines, et cetera. And so in the places where we've seen um, uh, a unified enrollment happen, that seems to have come from the um, either the charter or the district sectors sort of driving that. But if we're talking about um, the growth of choice in cities, I think that that is, you know, it's a fun, it's a legislative function. So there's, um, you know, permissions to be able to do that through charter laws. Certainly, um, within districts, they have the right to um, decide their enrollment policies, whether that's, um, you know, default to a, a, a school down the street or whether it sort of opens up and families can choose from uh, across the um, sector of schools. Um, and I think that. <clears throat> What we're finding in that front is that people really do value being able to choose, and and that's people from all income levels. So, you know, as Georgia mentioned, we did surveys with families who um, lived in eight cities and um, looked across their choosing patterns, and you know, across all income levels and um, educational backgrounds, if a city has choice policies and options families are exercising them, and they don't want to give that up. So um, so I think that providing choice is something families like. Making it work for families is the um, challenge that, um, you know, falls to uh, 
the policymakers and practitioners in these cities to actually deliver on. Yeah, and speaking of the policymakers, are there ways that the policymakers or program administrators can improve the relationship between these open enrollment policies and the communities that they affect? Yeah, I mean, you know, probably five years, maybe 10 years ago, you know, if we were to ask um, how much interaction districts and, and charters had with their communities, we would hear pretty little. And, <clears throat> you know, they would admit that and the, and the uh, families would confirm that. I think there's been a lot of effort over the last few years to really engage more with families. Um, but that said, it's still probably not enough. And so I think what needs to happen is just a lot more true uh, engagement. Um, so it's less about just sharing information. Um, you know, we're going to be doing this thing. You should know about it. And, um, and bringing folks in earlier to a number of decisions. And um, I think that, that there's a real tension there because obviously it can be hard to feel like you reached everyone. There will always be people who say, I didn't hear about that or I didn't know. Um, and that you can slow down um, progress by trying to engage too frequently. And you can also maybe um, convey to that uh, the public opinion will have more influence or, or impact than it does. So there's, there's definitely dangers in terms of um, trying to deliver on um, a much broader public engagement plan. But I think that the message we got in our interviews with community leaders is there's just not enough that's happened so far. And that when there have been uh, engagement opportunities, it's been a pretty closed loop. So a district or charters may ask for information and um, have forums, et cetera, and, and people will participate and reply. But then they never hear what, what the outcome was, and they don't know that it impacted or didn't a decision. And so I think there's just, um, you know, a, a more um, refining of that um, feedback loop needs to happen. Yeah, so let's go back to those barriers. So you found that low-income families under $35,000 per year reported difficulties with the public choice process and wanted more information about school culture and programs. So how do you propose that cities address that shortcoming? Well, there's probably two ways to think about doing that. So one is just a really practical thing, and that is um, making sure that there's information out there. So I think when we looked across our 18 cities, only 11 of the cities even had like a consolidated guide that you could turn to to even find the list of choices that were available. And even on that guide, when we looked more closely, <clears throat> many things were left off. <coughs> Excuse me. In some cities, there was no performance information. In other cities, uh, there was no information about special education programs or ELL programs, or as you mentioned, sort of curriculum and, and um, uh, other sort of in-school um, uh, information that families want to know. So one of the things that we've seen happen in some cities and we really recommend with others is that, um, you know, you do put together a guide and that you focus group that guide with families so that you really understand what it is they um, want to know more about. So in one case, um, in Camden, when they did focus groups, 
um, we were able to sit in on that, and we were able to learn a lot about what families wanted. They want to know about before and after school care, if that's available at a school, and if it's even offered at the school, because sometimes kids will be put on buses and brought to a second location. That really matters to parents. Um, they also want to know about the instructional approach and what kind of curriculum. Um, and sometimes I think uh, schools think families aren't really thinking about that, but it really does matter if this is, uh, you know, how, how instruction is delivered. Will that fit with my kid's personality and interests? Um, and they want to know about discipline rates. They want to know about fights. So those are things that, you know, I think districts and charters are um, kind of reluctant to share sometimes, but that's really important information for families. And they know that, that these things are going to happen across every school, but there's a certain amount of accountability that comes from being transparent about that. Um, and like I mentioned, they want to know about special education and English language programs. Um, and they would like these um, guides, uh, you know, translated into other languages so that um, some of the most vulnerable folks are able to make these choices. So that's just kind of the, the baseline that would be um, expected really in any city that has a lot of choice. But when it comes to the families um, that we found who are low income, these families living in poverty really need much more high touch support. And um, really every city needs to start to think about that because we don't want to replicate another system where uh, folks with agency are getting the first place online. So um, we've seen some really interesting developments in um, D.C. with um, D.C. School Reform Now, in New Orleans with Education Navigators. These are uh, third-party nonprofits that have um, uh, devoted their work to helping families navigate this process, and they do it in really interesting ways, but they connect one-on-one -on -one with people and really help them through. And in the case of Ed Navigators, they stay with them really through the whole K-12 experience um, and help them navigate everything from IEPs to choosing their middle school after elementary and beyond. So there's a lot, I think, that can be done with uh, current organizations that exist and maybe opening up new ones. Georgia, anything you want to add on that? Yeah, just, um, just to jump off of what Christine said, I mean, I think one thing that we heard um, from doing our community interviews was that families really take a lot of stock in their own social networks. So, um, well, what is my friend doing? Or, you know, what are the people at the local grocery store saying? And so I think one of the great things about these high, these um, organizations that are doing high-touch support is even though they may have a limited reach, you know, every year, all those families that they reach are then going to their own networks and telling their family, family members, their church group, their you know community, and so you start to really see a ripple effect. And um, it is really important, you know, to and one of the things that they're really doing, like Christine said, is they're starting where the families are at. You know, what is it that you care about? What is it that you want to know? And um, and how can we help you get the education that that your student deserves? Yeah, that's great. So here's the question of the hour. Are these cities' education systems improving as a result of having these public school choice policies? Um, well, so first we just want to start off by saying we cannot say <laughs> that. Um, our, our 
analysis was analysis. Um, it wasn't, we didn't have a research design that would allow us to answer that question. Um, so that said, you know, it's a very important caveat. Um, we can just kind of descriptively look at this, our very small sample of cities, um, and we can see that some of them are doing well. Um, we did find statistically significant improvement in math and ELA proficiency rates in five of our cities. Um, it sounds like not much, but it's actually, that's actually, you know, pretty good over three to five years. Um, we and kind of one of our the most notable findings was um, our lowest the lowest performing schools in in cities were not remaining in that low performing category. So across our cities, um, education leaders were able to um, you know those schools were not staying stuck in that low performing category, which means they were either improving, um, they were restarting, maybe some of them closed. Um, but, you know, for all of those students who had been enrolled in those low-performing schools, they, they were now in a school that was not chronically low-performing. So it's really good news. Um, most of our cities, we found, were gaining ground on their state and graduation rates. Um, so this is all really great news. You know, there's still a long way to go um, in terms of catching up to state averages and proficiency rates, graduation rates, and, of course, that access piece. Um, but, you know, one thing that we heard really is, again, when we were doing our community interviews, you know, are families better off than they were? Families saying, yes, they are, you know, there, at least there are choices now, and at least there are conversations that are happening um, that never were before, and that is significant. Yeah, and outcomes are a big deal, whichever side of the school choice fence that you're on. So... Is there something policymakers can maybe change about these programs to improve academic achievement based on the research that was conducted? Um, this is Georgia again. And I think the things that Christine mentioned um, are really important. And so just to kind of add on a little bit, um, I mean, we really, uncontrolled choice dictated by pure market principles is probably not going to work out very well. Um, so choice really needs guardrails, it needs good policy, it needs a lot of attention um, so that it can, you know, fulfill its promise. Um, and there's some things that we've seen, you know, and, and of course, every, you know, one of the beautiful things about these policies is that every city is going to decide what that means for them. Um, but we have seen um, some great movement in creating accessible, user-friendly information guides. We think that's a really important and fairly easy step to take. Um, like Christine mentioned, um, we have done some research on enrollment policies. Um, we didn't find in our parent survey that enrollment was, you know, cited as a major barrier, but it's still really important to have, you know, enrollment that is easy for families to go through and an application that's transparent and makes sense. Um, and this is just pretty low-hanging fruit. Um, of course, politics can get in the way with both of those things, um, but it's really important for education leaders to work together and buckle down so that um, these policies can really deliver. Um, there are some cities, uh, San Antonio is a great example, that are using what's called controlled choice. And that's where um, 
in San Antonio as an example, they're really looking to creating choice schools that have diversity by design models um, so that, you know, there's inter um, so that families from all incomes um, have there's places for them to enroll. Um, we've seen some great movement towards um, neighborhood schools. So we see um, in places like Camden in Philadelphia and Atlanta, you have um, these partnership schools where a charter operator, a high quality charter operator is working with a, um, the district to create a local neighborhood school um, that can serve the families in that area. Um, and so that to us is kind of a great, combina a great combination of using what's available that's come out of choice as these charter operators and leveraging their strengths um, to make sure that families who most need a high quality option have one. Um, you see places like Boston that have a, you know, very controlled lottery systems to make sure that families always have access to a high quality option. Um, there's a number of you know, different policies like that that we think are, are very important. Um, and you know, like Christine was talking about, it's really important to work with communities. Um, you know, whenever a city is opening a new school, whether that be a charter school or a district school, um, communities really should be front and sen center in terms of what is going to be a good fit model for that neighborhood. Um, when a school closure is necessary, and sometimes they are, again, you know, families need to be front and center in that process to make sure that they know what is happening years in advance, um, that the that district or charter leaders are there helping families transition out of the school to find a um, better academic option. Um, and these are things that we know will make a difference in terms of um, achievement later on. Yeah, most definitely. So as a researcher myself, I know that I'm often surprised to see some trends come through. Are there any notable or unexpected findings beyond what we've already discussed? Um, yeah, you know, that's, that was the interesting thing about this project was looking deeply into 18 cities and then kind of um, stepping back and looking across all of them. I mean, I think our big takeaways in terms of trends were just this piece about how important it is that um, when it comes to offering choice that you're really offering supports as well. So um, information, access, et cetera, kind of clearing up those pieces that get complicated when you don't have one monolithic system and one way of doing things. So that was one big um, takeaway. Another thing that sort of surprised us was just um, how hard it is for these um, cities and sectors to be strategic. They either don't have the data or they have the data, but they don't get really a chance to reflect and, and use it. Or um, they have to be really opportunistic when it comes to, say, opening and siting a new school because of um, facilities, challenges, et cetera. But what, what happens is without that strategy and um, analysis, you get a really kind of ad hoc uh, policy and we, we saw in too many cities that all the action, whether it was uh, district improvement policies or new schools opening, were happening just in like one part of town and there were whole other parts of town that had very low performing schools and the burden was on those families to get on, put their children on buses and send them far across town. Um, and so having, um, having that data and sort of 
the discipline to use it, I think, um, struck us as a real need. And um, as Georgia mentioned, just involving um, community more in a lot of these decisions. Um, there's just there's a lot more attention that needs to be paid, even just on smaller sort of transactional things like grievance procedures in the charter sector, um, and making that more clear. We heard cases where um, you know a family had a, had a problem with a charter school and they didn't know how to uh, resolve it, so they would end up at a school board meeting um, in a, a city that the schools were not authorized by the school district. So they're just you know again as I mentioned earlier when you when you become a decentralized system of schools there are new um, challenges to address in terms of helping people navigate that um, and then you know we were also surprised by um, uh, what was going on with talent and um, you know you hear a lot about shortages and um, so we would ask in our interviews um, was the district or charter able to start the school year with, um, you know, all uh, their vacancies filled? And they would say, yeah, we don't really have a problem with vacancies. But then we would ask if they felt like they had the right fit teachers, and they'd say, no, we definitely don't. Um, we're, you know, we lack folks who have expertise in math and science and special education and English language learning. Um, and then, um, they would say we, we don't have a very diverse workforce and we have we really struggle to keep our diverse teachers and leaders uh, and then we would ask them what they were doing about that and um, there wasn't really a direct strategy in mind as there was a lot of um, well we've got a lot of pipeline work going on we've got relationships with these different uh, teacher providers but but then occasionally we'd encounter a place that was really um, thinking about this in the case of Denver they were doing this where they we're doing um, stay interviews, they called them, with uh, their best teachers and um, their teachers and leaders of color and tried to figure out what it would take to keep them. And that proved really powerful. They learned things like we need more um, networks with each other. We need some support amongst each other. And we need some more wraparound services in some of the hardest to serve schools. Teachers are really burning out because they're having to do everything. And that really changes where you put your money. Are you going to put your money in a lot of pipeline things so you can keep bringing in new teachers, or are you going to put your funds in places that will help keep your best teachers? So that kind of um, more uh, strategic approach to talent, we felt, was something that more cities needed to think about. So I think across all, uh, all the cities we were looking at, those are the things that really stood out to us as trends. And then I think in terms of what surprised me. Um, I think, again, it was sort of this idea about um, you, you see a lot of challenge, et cetera, but when you zoom out, you do see a lot of progress and momentum. And truly, the capacity of the folks in these cities, we get off the phone calls with them and just be amazed at the energy and talent and um, drive that they were, each of the people we were talking to was bringing to their city. So there's just, there's a reason for optimism, there's momentum out there. Um, things are changing and it's, it's challenging. Maybe people aren't seeing the progress they'd like to see, but from where we stood, um, it, it was uh, remarkable to see what was working and the um, talent and um, expertise that really is available in these cities to get there. Yeah, that talent acquisition versus human capital development piece is really interesting. Yeah. 
Is there any more research you believe could be done in this arena? Well, actually, right now we're working with um, TNTP uh, to dig in more into this talent piece. Um, the things that we found really resonated with what they had seen. Um, so that's one place. Um, we also, in terms of the what Christine was talking about, um, the what we called strategic siting. So, um, you know, combining choice with neighborhood school policies and how strategic is a city able to be with locating schools that most need a high quality option. Um, that is now um, something that we are looking at further and we've been digging into um, school improvement policies and we're actually going to be convening with a lot of the leaders from these um, cities at the end of the month to talk more with them about um, what they're doing to improve their chronically low-performing schools and what are the challenges that are standing in their way. Um, and again, when you are in a context of a, a choice system. Yeah, so other than all of that, what's next for each of you? Are there any upcoming projects you'd like to plug before we go? Let's see. Well, as Georgia said, we're, we're digging into the talent question. Um, you know, we're also just thinking about uh, there's a lot of thinking about what's next in terms of portfolio. So um, there's a number of school systems working on it, but is this really where um, where we're going to see the needle move or something we're toying with is something more about the personalization of learning for students. So once you can kind of get the system working and functioning, is there a way to kind of step beyond that and think about a much more student-centered approach to their K through, I'd say 12, but really beyond years. So what, what might that look like? So we're doing some kind of futures thinking on that. And, um, and we're also continuing to dig into the um, information and, and access questions for families, especially families with uh, children with uh, special needs. So um, where do they get their information? What kind of information do they want? Um, are there enough schools that have programs that they want? So really kind of dialing into that population and really trying to um, get a better sense in the way that maybe you know, 10 years ago, uh, we were able to find that a number of schools were really um, moving the needle on students from low-income backgrounds. We want to look into places that are really moving the needle on um, students with special needs. Yeah, and just um, one last thing. We, Christine and I, are both um, right now working on a project in Washington State um, where our center is located, and we have a fairly new charter law. And um, so just kind of working on the center has done a lot with charter district collaboration, um, and so kind of working on the front end, so as charters are opening in cities, um, finding places of commonality so that um, the charter and district are working together kind of from the beginning to create this sense of like a citywide education approach. Yeah, that all sounds great, and I'll definitely be keeping uh, my eyes out for any forthcoming research out of it. This is great. Yeah, so with that, we'll wrap this EdChoice chat. But check out the description of this podcast for a link to Christine and George's report. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss another episode. Until next time, take care and be well.